Welcome. We're glad to have you here today. And we have a good business today. We have three witnesses testifying before us, all three great citizens of our country dedicated to the betterment of the United States of America and her citizens. We have Ms. Bonnie Glick, Michael Harvey, and Mark Montgomery. USAID is without a doubt the where America leaves its brightest spot and its mark all over the world. In the 14 years that I've been in the Senate and the six years I served in the House, my most memorable trips and experiences were in Africa and many other places around the world where the reach of USAID reached not only the health of people but their heart. What President Bush's program with PETFAR, continued by President Obama and now continued as well, has proven to be we've taken a disease that we thought might rack out all of mankind to where we've got it on the run, we're reducing it, and God willing, the creek don't rise. If we all live long enough, we'll get to the point where AIDS is a memory and not a problem to deal with in the future. This doesn't happen because it's, we're lucky. It doesn't happen because we're smart. It happens because we're committed and we care. The United States is a caring, caring nature. I also am one that believes that foreign assistance makes a lot of sense, not just in the gift of money or investment of money, but in knowledge and skills. And while we are criticized sometimes in Congress for our foreign relations budget and overseas budget, foreign aid is less than 1% of the United States appropriation. Yet that yet less than 1% investment probably brings us 80 to 90% of the goodwill we have around the world and continues to solidify it. And we need to remember that. If we're not getting our money's worth, we need to have the guts to force those who are not giving it to us to look at what they're doing and maybe help join us in what we're trying to do to help their people. But to threaten people by being getting away from it, giving aid and help is just not the right way for our country to go. And I know the chairman of the committee and the ranking member, and I know the ranking member here today, feel the same way as I do. I've long believed that our diplomatic, oh, hey, welcome. I've long believed that our diplomatic and developmental effort, effort to keep us from having our defense capabilities are very important. I have confidence in Administrator Mark Green to further the international interests by working with developing countries to achieve self-reliance, just what he did as an ambassador alone in Tanzania is evidence what one person can do with the right help, the right support, and the right commitment. So we're glad that you're all here today, and I'm pleased to uh, turn it over to the ranking member for any opening remarks she might have. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations to each of our nominees today. I look forward to hearing your testimony. Um, as I think you all know, the Senate has worked consistently to restore appropriate levels of foreign assistance to ensure that the professionals at the Department of State and USAID have the tools they need to adequately and effectively do their jobs. And in this regard, I'm really interested in hearing from our nominees about some of the more challenging issues that have been taken by this administration to revoke assistance to countries in conflict-ridden regions like Syria. In particular, I've just returned from Syria this summer. Um, I was in northeast Syria, and I'm concerned by the decision to revoke the stabilization funds for that region. I'm also interested to hear about your positions on global health, on girls' education, and gender equality. Um, I know that each of you have professional experiences dealing with those issues, and so I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about that. And of course, I want to hear about how USAID can continue its role as the leading global development agency, even as its internal reform process continues. So again, I thank you all for being here, for your willingness to consider taking on these challenging positions at this difficult time in the world. Thank you. With that said, I'm pleased to welcome our nominees today. First, Ms. Bonnie Glick of Maryland to be Deputy Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development. Mr. Michael T. Harvey of Texas to be Assistant Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development in the Middle East. And third, Mr. Mark Montgomery of Virginia to be an Assistant Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development, Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance. We'll start with you, Mr. Montgomery, and move down the table. Welcome. Well, let me do one other thing. Will you please be sure to introduce your family members and let us, on behalf of the whole committee, say to all of you how much we appreciate the sacrifice they make to make your service possible for what we do. I'm sorry I didn't say that right off the bat. Mr. <coughs> Montgomery. 
Hey, Chairman Ags and uh, Ranking Member Shaheen and dis distinguished members of the committee, I'm, I'm honored to appear before you today as a nominee for Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Democracy, Conflict and Humanitarian Assistance at the US United States Agency for National Development. I'm grateful to the President and Secretary Pompeo and especially Administrator Green for the trust they have in my leadership of a bureau so central to United States foreign policy objectives. And if confirmed, I will continue to work to support the country's national security and the administration's agenda. I want to thank my wife, Lucinda, who uh, is a Navy veteran herself, my son, Jack, and my daughter, Claire, who are all here with me today. They've been a family dedicated to service and country, sacrificing their needs and desires to support my lengthy U.S. Navy career. We all, know, we all know that no group sacrifices more for our military service members than our families, and I'm incredibly grateful to all three of these for their continued love and support. I also want to recognize the service of the dedicated USAID staff who've led the Dacia Bureau for the past 18 months, most recently Rear Admiral Tim Zemer. Their collective leadership has been invaluable as USAID has responded to crises across the globe, from Yemen to Venezuela. When I, when I decided to retire from the Navy after more than 32 years of active duty, I knew I wanted to continue to serve our country, specifically in a role that emphasized our exceptional American values and our commitment to democracy and humanitarian assistance. Before working on that, however, I'd given my word to Senator John McCain that I'd work first at the Senate Armed Services Committee on his staff. You know, I shared his zeal for oversight on national security issues and his desire to tackle a number of Department of Defense reforms. As you, as you all know, the Congress has recently completed the FY19 and DAA, which bears Senator McCain's name, and I'm now excited to return to my personal goal of working on democracy and development issues, if confirmed. I'm particularly proud to be nominated to lead, to lead USAID's DACHA Bureau. As Administrator Mark Green has said, ensuring democratic foundations is critical to USAID's work around the world, and it's pivotal, pivotal for the developing state's journey to self-reliance. I got to see this firsthand when I worked at US European Command and worked with the State Department and USAID country teams. I supported the democracy and stabilization efforts in the Baltics, Balkans, and Caucasus. This assignment taught me the valuable role that the US government has in building stable, resilient democracies and how this work contributes to the stable international order that the United States both supports on and relies on. Uh, during my naval career, I also had the privilege to work with USAID during the response to numerous natural disasters. There's no more powerful symbol of America abroad than a USAID uh, disaster assistance response team heading into the heart of an emergency. When Typhoon Haiyan hit the Philippines in 2013, the carrier strike group I commanded led the response on the part of the US Navy. But I worked side by side with, and in fact, I worked for the USAID DART team. Throughout our interactions, I saw the incredible value the USAID's expeditionary teams bring to disaster response. Dacha brought speed, expertise, resources, and the spirit of the American people to a disaster that threatened tens of thousands of Filipino lives. Taken together, the nine offices at Dacha provide rapid and effective assistance to those suffering. They provide a faster and more durable recovery, and they help shore up democracy and governance as the most critical means of preventing further conflict and lessening the devastation of natural disasters. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with Congress, working closely with the interagency and with the international community on three key areas. The first is to enhance the coherence of the US government's response to conflict by improving our ability to identify fragile states and provide corrective actions upstream before a problem metastasizes. The second is emphasizing USAID's efforts to tackle food and humanitarian assistance as prevention and deterrence challenges while continuing the agency's significant response effort. And the third is strengthening and elevating the US government's humanitarian voice, both by highlighting the leadership role of the United States, by encouraging consistent participation by key allies and partners. You know, finally, Senator McCain often reminded us that the United States is a great and powerful country. And with that great, uh, with that great power comes a blessing. And that blessing incurs a responsibility and a sacrifice. I'm honored to be considered for this position. I'm humbled by the responsibilities it entails. I thank you again and look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Mr. Montgomery. Ms. Glick. Senator Isaacson, Senator Shaheen, members of the committee, I'm honored to come before you today as President Trump's nominee to serve as Deputy Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development. I'm grateful to President Trump and Administrator Green for their trust and confidence in me to serve in this important role. I want to thank my family members for their unwavering support. 
My parents, both proud first-generation Americans, taught their four children the values of patriotism, the awareness of the role that our country plays on the global stage, and the understanding of the need to be loyal to friends and allies. My mother, Sherry Glick, is here today. My father, Jerry Glick, of blessed memory, is watching me here from somewhere up above. I'd also like to acknowledge my wonderful husband, Paul Foldy, and our sons, Matthew and Jonathan, who are here today. I began my career as a foreign service officer at an interesting time in foreign relations. The influence of the Soviet Union was waning and former satellite countries were coming out from under Moscow's grip. The Iron Curtain was lifting. I served two tours of duty in former communist countries, Ethiopia and Nicaragua. For each tour, I was trained in the local language and culture prior to assuming my duties. While in Ethiopia, I saw two nations, Ethiopia and Eritrea, emerge from the brutal dictatorship and red terror of one of Africa's most notorious regimes. In Nicaragua, I saw a country trying to recover from civil war. It saddens me today to see that Nicaragua, which had taken so many steps forward, has now retreated into the old ways of brutal dictatorial power games, once again under Daniel Ortega. By contrast, I'm heartened to see that Ethiopia and Eritrea have taken important steps to ensuring a lasting peace and look forward, if confirmed, to visiting the Horn of Africa and to promoting these efforts. Since August of last year, I have had the great privilege of serving as the Deputy Secretary of the Maryland Department of Aging, a cabinet agency. Like development, aging is not a partisan issue. We're all doing it. Through my work in the Department of Aging, I have been reintroduced after many years' absence to government service. I am reminded on a daily basis of the important mission I committed to as a granting agency, as a service agency, and as a senior leader in Governor Hogan's administration. I understand the importance of being a good steward of taxpayers' dollars, of providing high-quality service options, particularly to vulnerable populations, and to leading a large, professional, highly capable team of people committed to serving Maryland seniors. As Administrator Mark Green has said, the mission of USAID ultimately is to end the need for foreign assistance. Should I be confirmed, it will be my role to assist him and the exceptional women and men of USAID in achieving this goal. If confirmed, I will ensure the agency maintains its focus on the promotion of democratic values and free elections among the key pillars of our development work. Democracy and America's democratic values underpin all of the work done in USAID. The role of democracy and good governance cannot be underestimated when considering countries on the journey to self-reliance, countries that will one day be our partners in development projects around the world. If confirmed, I will pursue efforts already underway to reform USAID's offices and procedures. If I learned nothing else from my 12 years at IBM, I learned that there is always room for improvement, even when something is technically perfect. What I also learned from IBM is that the private sector has an important role to play in the development space. I look forward to the opportunity to work with partners in the private sector, the nonprofit sector, and across academia to come up with new and more innovative ways to stretch everyone's investments further in ways that are mutually beneficial to all. If confirmed, it will be a tremendous honor to serve my country again, this time as the Deputy Administrator of USAID. I know, too, that I will be humbled every day by the incredible work done by development and humanitarian assistance professionals in all parts of the globe. Their dedication to helping others, usually complete strangers on those strangers' journeys to self-reliance, is truly inspiring work, and it would be my privilege to participate in USAID's efforts to reach those in crisis and to help those striving for a better life. Many years ago, I caught the bug for international service. It carried me to the Soviet Union, to East Africa, to Latin America, to Asia, to Europe, and now to this table before all of you today. Senators, nearly 30 years later, my commitment to make a difference through the power of American values, American compassion, and American skills is stronger than ever before. If confirmed, I will work with Administrator Green to lead a world-class team to do life-changing work in environments that are often terribly hard. I commit to working with you and your staffs, with your counterparts in the House, and with the others in the interagency to achieve our goals as a nation. 
Thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Ms. Glick. Mr. Harvey, before you speak, I'd like to get Mr. Gar Mr. Corey Gardner to have a few words to say about you. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to all of the nominees for your willingness to serve our public. And Mr. Harvey, this is a little bit of an audible. I just wanted to thank you for your service. And of course, uh, the work we do through international development is incredibly important. Uh, we have a bill uh, coming up tomorrow uh, afternoon that will work on uh, our, our presence in, and development work in Asia. But the real reason I wanted to say something uh, is the gentleman uh, over your right shoulder. Uh, and I, I question whether or not we should confirm you uh, based on your brother, but uh, his brother is a senator from Colorado, a state legislator who I served with for a number of years, and just wanted to welcome the Harvey family. Uh, what an honor it is to have you here in your public service, and to Brother Ted, we will not hold that against you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator. The floor is yours. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for that allowance. <laughs> Senator Isaacton, uh, Senator Shaheen, and other distinguished members of the committee, um, I'm honored to come before you today as the President's nominee to be the Assistant Administrator for the Middle East at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Uh, like my colleagues, I'm extremely grateful for the confidence that President Trump, Secretary Pompeo, and Administrator Green have placed on me. Um, as I begin my remarks, I'd like to recognize the outstanding leadership of Hal Ferguson and Maria Longhi, um, who have headed USAID's Middle East Bureau for the past two years. Maria's knowledge and dedication acquired over a long and distinguished career with the U.S. government, it really is, reflects the best qualities of the career senior executive service in our government. And Hal, uh, with his service at the International Republican Institute where he led the Middle East programs, enabled him to step right into the role at USAID, and I look forward to working with him if I am confirmed. I'd especially like to thank my family, uh, including Ted, um, and friends and professional colleagues who have supported and encouraged me to pursue this opportunity. Uh, in particular, I'd like to recognize my wife, Laura, who is here with us today, um, and then my kids, Ellen, Hannah, and Jack, who could not be here. Uh, they know the importance of public service, and I'm here with their full support. We are a foreign, <coughs> excuse me, we are a foreign service family. And like thousands of other families who represent America in some tough places around the world, we've had an unusual life. Our decades abroad have given us tremendous respect for the men and women who serve uh, our country abroad, including the kids who serve our country abroad. Um, if confirmed, I will bring that experience as well as over 30 years of professional experience to this expertise to this job. And I'm particularly grateful to have the opportunity to be working in the Middle East again. It's a part of the world that has had great significance for me and my family. Uh, having served in the region throughout my career, um, it has played a significant role in our children's upbringing. Um, it was a joy to watch our oldest daughter uh, graduate from high school at the Roman Amphitheater in Jirash in Jordan, and then to hear our son sing Hatikva when he graduated from high school in Israel. During my career, I have seen significant changes at USAID, especially since September 11th. I am proud that we are a much stronger, smarter, and more flexible agency than when I joined. Our role in foreign affairs and national security has evolved dramatically. We have a much closer and more integrated working relationship with our interagency colleagues. We have emerged as thought leaders on the drivers of fragility in the countries where we work, and we've accumulated a deep understanding of what drives extremism and social division. This knowledge has enabled us to be much more helpful to our colleagues across the U.S. government as we collectively grapple with the challenges across the globe, especially in the Middle East. If confirmed, I look forward to further strengthening these important capacities and these relationships. The complex humanitarian and development situation and political situation in the Middle East and North Africa presents us both challenges and opportunities. USAID can help the people of the region meet these challenges. The Middle East Bureau is responding to immediate crises in the region while building on the positive trends that do exist and laying the foundations for future US government engagements beyond the US assistance programs. While the Middle East poses many challenges, it also presents enormous opportunities to showcase what can be done and what has been done through the generosity and commitment of the American people. The people of these countries are ready 
for constructive change, to engage with the global community in building a prosperous, peaceful future, a future consistent with their own culture and history. The United States can easily come up alongside to support these aspirations. If confirmed, I commit to partnering with the people of the Middle East and North Africa to help them on that journey to self-reliance. Senator Isaacson, Senator Shaheen, and other distinguished members, I am honored that I've been sat, sitting here at this desk with my colleagues, and I, look, and, and I thank you for the opportunity to be here. I look forward to answering your questions. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate all of you being here today. It's a great... Uh, thank you. Somebody say something. Don't disturb everybody. <laughs> glad to have you, Mr. Gardner. And glad to have your brother, too, Mr. Harvey. Was he good to you when y'all were growing up? No. no. I, I'm, the, oh, I'm the older senator. I knew that was going to be the answer. We'll start with a round of questions, and I'll lead off for, with, with one. Uh, I want to thank Mr. Montgomery for his comments about John McCain. Uh, John's example is a great military leader of our country, member of the United States Senate, prisoner of war, member of the United States Navy, decorated pilot. But John always believed in diplomacy. He believed everything he did with power was only made possible in the end by diplomacy that could make a peace lasting. And so your, your recognition of him and his philosophy as a military man and as a citizen and a servant in the Senate very, really very much appreciated me, and I, I appreciate it very much. I just wanted to say that to you. Thank you very much. Ms. Glick, I'm old. You serve the old people of Maryland. You can ask the new young people of USAID. Is that right? That's exactly right, Senator. What, what, um, how would you describe your job as a deputy administrator of USAID? That's a great question, and when I was first asked if this was something that I would be interested in doing, I asked that same question. What's the job? And the answer then was anything that the administrator doesn't want to do. But the truth of the matter is it's working with the talented women and men of USAID around the world doing a lot of the day-to-day uh, -day operations of the agency to ensure that the administrator is freed up, often to be the public face of USAID, but falling back into that category of when he's running around in one part of the world and another part of the world needs immediate attention, certainly that would be where I fall in. It's also part of running an agency that is spread around the world with something like 11,000 employees and staff and, and implementing partners and taking into account on a day-to-day -day basis their safety and security in operating environments that are often quite dangerous. Uh, it'll be a combination of a lot of all of the above and I have a feeling that no one day will be like the last. You're gonna be the one who gets delegated all the hard jobs. That could be, sir. Mark's a great leader. Yes, he is. You'll be a great leader. You'll be a great person to help him out with that because I would, as I was listening to you talk, I was thinking when I read that you were going to be deputy, I said, well, I wonder what a deputy administrator is really going to do. But really what you are is vice president of USAID. You're the number two person to go set the table when the administrator has to later come in and right. find the deal. And that's a very important job. And you're, I think your experience in Maryland and doing the job you did there will be a tremendous help to you in doing exactly that in terms of USAID's concern. Ms. Harvey, um, what do you see as the most important thing you need to know to be one who can resolve conflict in the world? That's part of your job. It is, in fact, part of my job, Senator, and it's not a small matter. You know, having spent 30 years in one war zone after another, um, what has struck me is how important it is for us to understand the turf that we are on. Uh, I find too often we go in with a, either little understanding, a superficial understanding, or a highly misinformed understanding of, of where we're going, the lives that we are affecting, and the history that we are stepping into. Uh, I said in my remarks that we are a smarter agency, um, which doesn't make us necessarily always up to the task, but I think modesty has got to be just a core value in the agency when you're trying to affect somebody else's life. And um, if you don't start with that, uh, making peace is awful hard. 
The Maghrib, I think, is the term used to define North Africa, is it not, on the continent, on the continent of Africa? So for that, the, the west half of it, yes. We, the west half of it? Yes. Make sure I phrase my question right. <laughs> that part of the world is to the, that part of the world, what the heart is to the human body, it's the heartbeat of what's gonna happen in the future. Civilization pretty much began close to that area and developed in that area, and one day the Bible teaches us it's gonna probably be decided in that area. And we all know from what's happened with uh, Osama bin Laden, with uh, Daesh, with uh, all the terrorist organizations we had to deal with, the terrorism acts that have taken place, that that's gonna be the hotbed for the immediate future, certainly for your lifetime and for mine. What do you think the United States has to do to get ourselves in the best position to be the leader of the solution for the Maghreb and that part of the world on the issue of terrorism? You know, after we've been wrestling with this as a country and as a government now for almost 20 years, and um, it continues to be a tough, tough issue. But that, the thing that has struck me as I've spent my time in that part of the world is how broadly and deeply the people of that region want this chapter to close. And there are currents in every one of these societies that are pushing for, toward a future that's very consistent with what our vision would be of, of, of peace, of, 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 of individual freedom, even if it's expressed perhaps in a different cultural model than we would recognize here in the, in the West. And, when I see how we should be engaging with these societies, we need to come up alongside those folks who have the energy and the bravery and the vision that we share um, to push these uh, very, very troubled countries and very, very troubled societies toward a, toward a future that they want uh, that is consistent with our values. Because at the end of the day, I find much more, we find there is much more that we agree with than what divides us. I agree with that, and I, I think most of the difference we have are because of religion. The differences of religion and the Muslim faith and some of the things that are going on in that part of the world are the are hardbed of some of the difficulties we had. We saw that with uh, Sunni and Shia and Iraq and the Iraq conflict. And if we can find a way to take our USAID efforts to bond with the people of the various countries, regardless of the religion that's the base in the country, but make us a part of that and their religion a part of what we try and serve, the better we'll able to reach those people and bring about people, bring about peace in that era. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Montgomery, I want to echo Senator Isaacson's comments about um, what you had to say about John McCain. We all miss him already, and I think the model of service that he set for everyone in the country is important for us to share with the next generation. And I think I would not be speaking out of John McCain's um, school of agreement if I didn't say that I question your judgment for leaving Sunapee, New Hampshire to come down to Washington, DC. <laughs> I think John would probably question that as well. Um, Mr. Montgomery is from New Hampshire, from a very beautiful part of New Hampshire. And uh, we appreciate that you're willing to, to make the sacrifice to consider taking on this role. I want to ask you, because USAID is in the process of merging its key humanitarian offices into a single bureau, um, how, how you think we need to ensure a successful merger in doing that, and what sort of um, challenges pose the greatest problem as you think about how that merger needs to happen? Thanks, ma'am, and thanks for the comments on Son of P. My parents will be very happy. Uh, the, um, you know, I, I have been briefed on the organizational change, and obviously all three of us are very aware of it, and it's been part of our preparation. What I would say is it was obvious to me that what the administrator was looking for was improving the efficiency and the effectiveness of uh, USAID as it expends the taxpayer dollar. Not, obviously, all of us can agree that's a, that, that's, that's a good intent. I think for us, what to look at is are we bringing together the, um, in that efficiency, it, it, that search for efficiency and effectiveness, the preparation, the elements of preparation, 
or mitigation of a casualty. In other words, what we do ahead of time to try to prevent a fragile state from turning into a crisis state with the, with the same, uh, with, with the um, portions of the agency that we're doing the response. If you do that, you can get a lot of the lessons learned. You can build the ligature between those two so that the sensing of the, of the fragility breaking down into chaos is better seen and the investments are made to prevent that from happening. So I think whether you look at it in the democracy area, the humanitarian area, or the conflict prevention area, if we can improve the, uh, the um, ligature between efforts, take preventative efforts, and then the uh, eventual uh, recovery efforts will improve the overall resilience uh, of the states we support. So that's the kind of uh, what I'll be monitoring uh, as if, if in fact it's a, the, uh, the notification is all approved and we begin to do uh, elements of the uh, reorganization, we'll be uh, monitoring to see if the efficiency and effectiveness of, their, of the agency are improving. If I could comment on one other thing, I think it makes it easier for outside organizations to reach into us if we're able to organize ourselves in a more efficient way where there are different elements of food security or hygiene and water or uh, democracy or conflict resolution are housed together. If we could make it easier for, whether it's inside the interagency or whether it's with international partners or allies, to make it easier to reach into, we'll make our, our organization inherently more efficient. Um, I, I cer that certainly makes sense to me. I, I guess my question is, what do you think the biggest challenges are in doing that? Um, where are we gonna run into difficulties and how do we get past those difficulties? Well, um, I've seen in being inside DOD, I, get to ex I got to experience a reorganization mm -hmm. every year or so. And uh, I think the biggest, the biggest problem that I've seen in the Senator Kane and I appreciate yeah. that because we sit on the Armed Services Committee. Yes, ma'am. Uh, and so I would say the biggest challenges were um, people protecting rice bowls, people having a, a presumption of responsibility that they, they don't, not necessarily understanding the administrator's overarching uh, vision. Um, I will say, having now been briefed extensively inside AID, um, the mix of professionals there of uh, civil servants, foreign service, and the contractor personnel, absolutely, it's a flat organization, and it's an organization that, is, you know, that experiences turbulence in the field routinely. As a result, I found them fairly shock-hardened, and I don't think we'll have that challenge of, I've got my rice bowl here. They've, been, they've done enough movement, enough, uh, had enough... Um, uh, uh, instability in the job assignments when they're overseas, that when they're back in Washington, I don't think that'll be an issue, but it's certainly something to monitor, and I'm certainly, I'll work uh, with the deputy administrator if confirmed and if she's confirmed to ensure that we achieve that level of efficiency. Thank you. Um, Ms. Glick, as we discussed earlier today in my office, and I appreciated your taking time to do that, um, I think one of the um, values that we should be very proud of in the United States and with the work of the State Department and USAID has been the emphasis on gender equality, um, the importance of women empowerment. It's been a core development issue and we've seen that USAID has gender programs in more than 80 countries. And as I said this morning, I am concerned that this administration is beginning to chip away at that commitment to gender equality and women's empowerment and to send ambivalent messages about how committed we are to that. Um, as an example, the administration stripped all reference to sexual and reproductive health and rights from the State Department's Human Rights Report. That's an essential source of information for reporting on abuses and holding abusive governments to account. Um, we also saw at the General Assembly last year that the U.S. pushed back against language in a resolution on violence against children that condemned all forms of violence against children, which um, has implications for what the U.S. government pushed to limit this language to unlawful forms of violence against children, which has implications for what countries consider lawful violence, which could include things like child marriage, corporal punishment, that sort of thing. So reassure me that you will be committed to continuing that focus on women's empowerment and gender equality. Senator Shaheen, thank you very much for the question and thank you too for meeting with me this morning. I found it very useful and I do want to recommit to you uh, that I am 
very focused on women's issues, maternal health, reproductive health, voluntary family planning. These are issues that a society cannot develop, a country cannot get on its own journey to self-reliance if it does not take into account equal rights uh, for 50% of the population. This goes to educating girls. This goes to empowering women, whether it's through small business empowerment programs or through their own maternal health and access to information about how to more properly space their pregnancies so that they too can advance societally. I must reassure you that I am fully committed to ensuring that the agency focuses and continues a traditional focus on women's issues and women's rights. Well, can you also talk about why this is important to men, not just women? This is critically important to men, as I have three of my most important men sitting behind me today. Uh, it's important for men to understand that women are productive and engaged members of their societies, that girls are equally as entitled to education as boys are, because those girls and women will and should be the leaders of their countries in the future. Thank you, and, and what we know is that when we support women um, in developing countries, that they tend to give back more to their families, to their communities and to their countries than the male members of those societies. So I think it is very important to remind us all that this is not about women, it's about building stable societies. Thank Agreed. you. Agreed, thank you, ma'am. Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. And uh, I wanna thank our nominees for interest in, in serving our country. Uh, most appreciated welcome members of, of your family and friends uh, to this hearing. Ms. Glick, in his June prepared testimony to this committee, uh, Administrator Green wrote that our assistance seeks to help empower people, communities, and government leaders on their journey to self-reliance and prosperity. In that same hearing, I contrasted the United States' focus on building self-reliant strategic and economic partners with China's focus on resource extraction and the creation of dependence. <laughs> Administrator Green uh, agreed with my characterization. In a June speech at the Brookings Institute, Administrator Green commented on what he called, quote, emergence of China's mercantile authoritarian assistance programs, unquote. He said China has shown little interest in adhering to the norms of debt sustainability or the principles of development assistance that we believe in, instead securing conditions and indebtedness that essentially mortgage a country's future. China's neo-colonial hardball tactics and use of debt to force Sri Lanka to agree to a 99-year lease in a key port should be instructive to observers around the region, including Pakistan, Bangladesh, and elsewhere. Ms. Glick, can you share your thoughts on China's debt trap uh, diplomacy and mercantile authoritarian assistance programs and how the United States should respond going forward? Senator, it's a great question, and I agree wholeheartedly with Administrator Green in his assessment of the Chinese approach to foreign assistance, which at the end of the day is leading to tremendous debt burdens for the countries that are recipients of this Chinese largesse. Uh, what USAID seeks to put forward is something that would be referred to as a clear choice, that countries have the option, and I love the language of uh, mercantile authoritarian assistance. That's great. He's got a great speechwriter. <laughs> uh, it, it's very important that countries recognize what they're doing when they enter into a deal with the Chinese. And you mentioned Sri Lanka. Uh, we just saw, and I just read in the Wall Street Journal, a column about the Maldives, very close to Sri Lanka, which has taken the turn away from the direction of China. They just held elections. 90% of eligible voters voted, and 58% of them voted for the opposition candidate who took an active pro-Western and anti-Chinese approach, recognizing that he's not interested in mortgaging the future of the citizens of the Maldives. So that, um, that's a great lead-in to the second part of, of my question for you, and uh, it seems as though we have an opportunity to persuade 
populations within these countries uh, that their future is indeed being mortgaged uh, by accepting this sort of development assistance. So um, do you agree that the United States therefore should be using our voice and our vote uh, and our convening power and, and all measures sort of at our, our disposal in uh, multinational fora uh, to, uh, to educate uh, uh, all countries of the world about this sort of debt trap diplomacy and we should be pushing for more transparency on these uh, projects in these, these uh, various fora? Yes, sir, I absolutely agree. Okay. What about um, the use of Chinese labor on these local projects? Is that of concern to you uh, as well, or uh, is that a lesser concern maybe than, than the debt dimension? That's a great concern as well, because U.S. development projects are focused on engaging with local employment, providing economic growth opportunities for people who are residents, citizens of those countries where development projects occur. Importing labor from China, and sometimes I understand importing substandard materials, is a, a trap again. Countries aren't getting economically developed the way they are through U.S. development assistance programs, and Chinese laborers come and go. So that's a, another point of education for the United States as, as, as we work with other countries who share our values and our, our model of um, development assistance to emphasize there's really a, a, at least a dual mandate here uh, to build the infrastructure and help catalyze an economy that needs catalyzation, right? That's right, okay. exactly. Um, Ms. Glick, I, I, I want to pursue another line of questioning with you, uh, but uh, first thank you for mentioning Rohingya in your prepared statement. I've done my best to follow this horrible situation. I have somewhat of a vested interest in this. We have a, a significant uh, Burmese-American population in my home state of Indiana, and I met with the Bangladesh ambassador uh, to the United States last week to talk about this very situation. I was pleased to see the administration's announcement just yesterday of additional humanitarian assistance, including $156 million for Rohingya refugees and host communities in Bangladesh. Uh, the provision of critical emergency services, um, including protection, emergency, shelter, food, water, sanitation, and health care, is in the best traditions of U.S. leadership on humanitarian assistance. And so I applaud the Trump administration for this decision. I'd also note that the Department of State released yesterday a report entitled Documentation of Atrocities in Northern Rakhine State. Uh, have you had a chance to review the report, Ms. Glick? I, I have not yet reviewed the report, but I know that it's out there. Okay. Will you review yes, this of course. report, Ms. Yes. Glick? Okay. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I request unanimous consent to include this in the record. All right. Thank you. So um, for those who haven't reviewed it yet, based on a spring 2018 survey of the firsthand experiences of over 100, uh, rather 1,000 Rohingya refugees in Cox's Bazar, additional credibility uh, to reports uh, we've already heard. The report found that the violence was, quote, extreme, large scale, uh, and widespread. The violence seemed designed for terrorizing the population and driving out the Rohingya residents. Uh, the scope and scale of the military's operations indicate they were well-planned and coordinated, and that the tactics utilized that resulted in mass casualties included, quote, locking people in houses to burn them, fencing off entire villages before shooting into the crowd, or sinking boats full of hundreds of fleeing Rohingya. Ms. Glick, uh, when we see such atrocities happen, in addition to demanding a halt to the violence and demanding humanitarian access, uh, do you agree that we should seek to identify the perpetrators and hold them individually accountable? Yes, Senator, I do. Okay. Well, um, I certainly agree. Um, if, if the words never again are to have meaning in, in actual practice, we shouldn't be reluctant to call atrocities uh, like this by their name, identify the perpetrators, and hold them accountable. And so uh, I'm very encouraged by your responses. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Senator Kane. Mr. Chair, thank you, and to the witnesses, congratulations for your nominations. Um, I want to pay you a compliment, I want to be blunt, and then I want to have a couple of questions. So on the compliment side, you were all three very, very uh, uh, appropriately qualified for these positions, and I've had a chance to see Mr. Montgomery's work in person on the SAS committee, and I think you'll represent 
the nation very well. But I want to be blunt. Um, because we have hearings with people like you, like your director, Director Green, who I think is very, very solid, um, where you represent the best traditions and want to do the best things, and yet we are getting such a set of mixed messages from the administration that I think your job's hard. Um, this is an administration, well, I think one of you in your testimony said the, the purpose for AID and our humanitarian effort generally is because A, it's who we are and we want to demonstrate who we are, and B, we want to encourage other nations to do more by our example. This is an administration that pulled out of, alone among nations, pull out of the UN Global Compact on Migration um, that had just recently announced a very dramatic reduction of past practices of accepting refugees. Um, we have received the budget proposals from the Trump administration with respect to USAID and the State Department. The first one in 2017 dramatically slashed the budget. We came back in a bipartisan way and worked to save USAID's budget. Did the administration learn? Did they say, I guess Congress likes this and we should keep funding it? No, they came back this year and proposed a 31% cut for development assistance. Today, the president spoke at the UN. Um, he, he pretty much trashed international institutions. He said the focus should be on sovereignty, not international organizations of the kind that USAID partners with all the time. We're engaged in trade wars, not even against nations we have to be pushing very hard like Canada, but we've engaged in trade wars using national security waivers against allies of ours. And so the notion that we want to be the leader to express who we are and we want to encourage others to do more, I frankly think that this is an administration that at the top, not people in your positions at the top, the message is completely to the contrary. Uh, even the report that um, Senator Young was asking about, it, it looked to me like the State Department in that report sort, sort of took some mileage off the fastball. They wouldn't use the genocide word. Uh, to summarize the, the evidence that was summarized very bluntly in the report, the atrocities burning people alive, sinking their boats, but the administration wouldn't use that word. And so I think the, the message that's being sent from the top, sadly, is that the work of USAID and the work of professionals like yours are not a priority for this administration. I don't expect you to comment on it, but I, I don't think we can leave that um, sort of unremarked upon in a hearing where we're talking about development aid when the president just was, went to the UNGA and basically got laughed at as he tried to describe what the United States was doing in the world because the gathering of, of nations, of leaders from other nations, found that to be an incredible claim based upon what he's done. Let me ask a couple of specific questions, uh, Ms. Glick, to you. What is the status of economic support fund assistance to the West Bank and Gaza? And what types of projects have been directly affected by the administration's effort to redirect funding? Um, are multi-year projects ongoing, or will they be stopped in their tracks? And if they are, how difficult will it be to resume those projects? Senator, thank you for your comments. I appreciate them very much. And I want to assure the committee that, uh, if confirmed, I will follow in the footsteps of Administrator Green and be very grateful for the funding that Congress generously appropriates to the agency. On the specific subject of the funding for West Bank and Gaza, my understanding, although you know I was not part of the deliberations, uh, is that this was part of a broad administration policy that was done across the interagency. I hear your concern. Uh, I'm not prepared to comment on it because I wasn't there at the table with all of the decision making. If confirmed, I commit to engaging with you and certainly with my friend, Mr. Harvey, uh, on the issues going on in the West Bank and Gaza. Mr. Harvey, do you have anything you want to add to that? Um, no, other than to assure you, Senator, this, these are issues I know well. This is terrain I know very well. Yep. Um, I'll be all over this and I'll be watching closely and people will, people, I, I will be, Consistent with my reputation, people will know my sense of things. Uh, I will. I will not be. I'll be a constructive player in the game. Excellent. Well, I think we we will continue to ask uh, about this because, uh, again, I have confidence that you will do everything you can with every bit of resources you have. There are some decisions that are not made by you, but um, as we talk to leaders in Israel and Palestine, 
we're hearing, even on the Israeli side, a deep concern about the U.S. slashing some of these funds. Now, we need to use funds to promote good behavior and not reward bad behavior. Uh, but basic humanitarian needs, the United States backing away from providing basic humanitarian needs to people who are pretty stressed is likely to ratchet up tension, ratchet up problems rather than reduce them. And this is certainly what we're hearing from our Israeli allies, many of them. Um, I want to ask about Syria. Delivering assistance there is really tough. You have to work through partners. It's very challenging. Senator Shaheen was there recently. And it's been an immense challenge for USAID's partners in the past, continues to be. There's legislation currently on the table in Congress that would severely limit the work. USAID could work within uh, Assad government-controlled areas. From a humanitarian perspective, would limiting assistance to, quote, a democratic Syria and severely conditioning assistance into areas under Assad's control be helpful or harmful to Syrian reconstruction pro prospects for peace and democratization? Well, sir, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll uh, take that question first, and I, I appreciate it because I think it gets at a, an important issue here, which is that uh, we are still giving us, uh, providing a significant humanitarian assistance in a very challenging political environment. I think it's around eight, 875 million a year and if you look back over the last four years, the government, our government's given about eight billion, USAID about four billion of that. And you're absolutely right that it's challenging to deliver. I think we have the processes set up, I think, uh, as changes in the political environment or security environment have occurred in Syria, it's become more complex, but we do have a strong uh, um, grouping of partners, about 20, I think, I think 23 or so partners that Dodge is using throughout Syria to distribute this uh, assistance. Obviously, if the security environment becomes more challenging, delivery will be more challenging. But I think at our core, our mission is to provide humanitarian assistance to those most in need. So we'll continue to press to provide it. We do have a series working both internally and with our AID Inspector General, a series of assessments to make sure that assistance is being gotten to the right recipient is being uh, getting there in its full in its full context and value, and we'll continue to ensure that that's happening. But you're absolutely correct that it becomes more challenging as the security environment uh, becomes weaker or more difficult for the United States to control. Do you, do you know whether the administration has taken a position on the proposed legislation that would limit humanitarian aid into Assad-controlled areas? I mean, I think it's a hard question to kind of resolve. We don't want to prop up bad behavior by the Assad regime. Nevertheless, there are people suffering within those Assad-controlled areas that we have uh, an understandable sympathy towards. I don't think it's an easy question, but do you know whether the administration has taken a position on proposed congressional limitations of such aid? Well, sir, I agree with your uh, background comments to it, and I do, not, I do not believe we have taken a position, and I'm not aware that we have. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Appreciate it. Thank you, Senator Kane. Are there any other questions? Do you have any? Shaheen? Um, Mr. Harvey, I, I want to follow up a little bit on the direction that Senator Kane was going on Syria. You talked about in your opening statement your experience in the Middle East. Um, you pointed out that you actually led an agency task force for USAID to defeat ISIS in Iraq and Syria. So as Senator Kane mentioned, I had the opportunity to visit northeast Syria um, during the summer and saw what was happening there after ISIS had been thrown out. So what do you see as the risk if we're not continuing to be present in areas like Northeast Syria where ISIS has been defeated as we look at the future and the challenges that those communities face? Senator, I want to open my remarks by thanking you for taking the trip up there. Um, and I was uh, extremely personally pleased to hear that you were impressed with what you saw. Uh, you may know I was, deep, I was very deeply involved with getting that program up and running and working through the decision-making process to allow it to happen, because there was a lot of uncertainty as to people's comfort with it. Right. But I'm very proud that we did it, uh, and I'm very proud of the success of it under really exceptionally difficult circumstances. Um, a lot of the credit goes to our Syrian, most of the credit goes to our Syrian uh, colleagues who really did the heavy lifting, but also Absolutely. our special forces, right. who were just a remarkable bunch. 
Um, Senator, I, I will be somewhat evasive in answering your question only in that I'm not quite sure sort of where the conversation is within our government yet. I intend to be deeply involved in, in those conversations as the situation evolves and changes. I think uh, Senator McCain's um, you know, assessment that we're going to be seeing some rather big changes coming in the near future is going to be something that all of us are going to be very aware of, uh, and I intend to be very deeply involved in sort of thinking through what, what does that mean for our interests and how best can the United States respond. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. I, I have to also give credit to the Syrian Democratic Forces. Um, they, as we saw them on the ground, they were very responsible players. And while I appreciate Turkey's view, um, the people we talked to didn't have any interest in working with, um, with Turkey and doing anything to destabilize Turkey. They were interested in trying to maintain stability in that part of Syria. And it was really heartwarming to drive down the roads and see kids walking along, flashing victory signs for when they saw our military vehicles. Right. And to hear from people really urging us not to leave them alone, to not to abandon them after we had thrown out ISIS. And I think it's really important for us to remember the lessons of Iraq and um, some of the other countries where we have made commitments. And I think we've heard both Ambassador Jeffrey and National Security Advisor Bolton confirm that the administration intends to keep US troops in Syria. And so um, making sure that that comes with those funds to stabilize the region, which we have committed to and which Congress has already appropriated, seems to me to make a lot of sense as we look at how we maintain stability in the region going forward. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, ma'am. These are going to be tough issues. Uh, I think the administration's clear commitment to the ensuring the enduring defeat of ISIS will ensure that we will do the right thing. Bless you. <laughs> Both for your comments and whoever's sneezing in the back of the room. Um, Ms. Glick, one of the other issues we discussed this morning was the pullback that the United States has made from UNFPA and support for family planning programs. And the explanation that has been given has been because of their support for um, China's one-child policy. And Again, as I said to you this morning, I'm very concerned that what we're doing is in pulling back on us or our support for family planning, actually um, putting more families at risk, um, seeing more uh, abortions, more maternal deaths as the result of that. And so can you talk about what your commitment will be at USAID to ensuring that we continue to support um, family planning and um, strong families? Senator, thank you very much. Uh, I, I will confirm to you that I do continue to support strong families, voluntary family planning, maternal health, women's health issues, access for women to quality health, uh, quality health services, quality deliveries, um, access for women and men, uh, to make informed decisions on choosing the number and timing of their pregnancies. I think that the funding that is being withheld from the UN Population Fund is being reprogrammed, is my understanding. You and I discussed this morning uh, about what it is being reprogrammed into. Uh, and I went back to USAID after our meeting and discussed it and learned that it's being reprogrammed into maternal health programs, into reproductive health and voluntary family planning programs, and into a new initiative that the, the agency is taking on, which is a new focus on cervical cancer, which is closely tied to reproductive health. Um, well, thank you. I think that's important. As we discussed, however, um, the reprogramming request is um, also part of language that I submitted in the appropriations bill, actually, and um, what we learned is that um, 
it required questions from the from this committee's minority staff in order to get USAID to do that reprogramming. So, and we are still waiting to have uh, a briefing on how that happened, why that didn't happen automatically once the, the legislation was passed. So, um, will you commit to me that as um, once confirmed that USAID will brief the Senate Foreign Relations Committee members who are interested and my office on the original notification? Yes, ma'am, I will commit to that. I will also commit that we'll focus on these very important issues. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Sheen. Thank you all for your willingness to serve your country. Thank you for the service you've given to the country in the past. We look forward to seeing your confirmation completed and your serving your country in the future overseas. For the benefit of those here and on the panel, the record will be held open until September 27th for any additional comments or any additional filings or any additional questions. If there are no other further questions, this meeting stands adjourned. <laughs>